Hello, everybody. My name is Ariel, and I'm here with my sister, Adriana. Hi. And welcome to the Pieces from Prison podcast. Um, So in this podcast, I'll be reading letters from people who are incarcerated in many different prisons around the United States. So, Ariel, let me ask you, how did you come up with this idea? So, I came up with this idea because I came across the Prison Pen Pal website on accident, and I was just, like, hooked. From the minute I got on, I was just, like, looking at everybody's profile, and I just wanted to message all of them. And so, I mean, that's kind of what I did. I just messaged everybody. I looked up their cases I saw what they were in for, when they would be released, possibly. And so, yeah, I just messaged so many people. And, yeah, that's basically how I came up with the idea. (laughs) So maybe I'm going to skip and go ahead to the introductions because I feel like that, I don't know, would be interesting to talk about. So what, like, where do you um, work? Where do you live? Um, And, like, why is this kind of work important to you? So, right now, I'm living in Indianapolis. I work for Crime Stoppers of Central Indiana. And this work's important to me because before I worked at Crime Stoppers, I did an internship at the Juvenile Court Complex here in in Marion County. And I worked with a probation officer who basically only dealt with serious offenders, which serious offenders is what they called it, but it's any juvenile who had a charge, nothing less than a gun charge. So at first I was like kind of scared to talk to these kids because I felt like a kid myself, but once I got to know them, I realized that most of them were so polite and they had the best manners and they just had not the best home life, not the best family life. And I just felt for them. I could never relate to the life that they have lived, but I kind of understood better why they made those choices. And what about you, Nana? What, What do you do? Where do you live? And why is this work important for you? So I live um, in Chicago right now, and I'm a graduate student, and I study memory and sleep. Um, But this work's kind of important to me just because I would consider myself to be um, an activist for criminal justice reform. Um, I think that you and I know being Black and Hispanic, um, we kind of understand how policing affects people, and especially black and brown neighborhoods. And the U.S. has one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. So when Ariel, um, when you kind of came and had this idea, I thought it would be a nice way to spread awareness and for us to better understand the people that make up the criminal justice system. Um, And not to say that we can, you know, excuse crime, but 
like you said, we can have a better idea about like the circumstances that led up to, um, you know, what ultimately put them in prison. Thanks for sharing, Nana. <laughs> okay, so I guess that we can go ahead and get into our first letter. Um, so I just want to say, I'm not sure if I've said it yet, but all the prisoners that I'll be talking about are going to be anonymous just for safety reasons. And I just, I don't know. I think it's best if I keep them anonymous. So I will not be saying names. I'll not be saying locations of who or where this came from. And also, um, I just want to put a trigger warning in here for drug use, addiction, relapse. Um, so yeah, I will get into it. So this person wrote me, he said, dear Ariel, first of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to reach out to me. As you know, I don't hear from too many people. It gets pretty lonely in here. So receiving your letter, put a smile on my face. I am more than interested in participating in your podcast. I never thought anyone would be interested in my life story. Majority of the time, I feel like I don't exist anymore after being incarcerated. Everyone I thought I knew slowly and surely started to disappear. I was blessed to grow up with both my parents. They're currently still together and have been married over 30 years. You can say we grew up comfortable. We grew up in a small two-bedroom home that my grandfather built. Me, my sister, and my parents, just us four, is all we have, so we tend to stick together. Growing up was good. Me and my sister can't really say we went without because we always had food on our table, roof over our heads, and never went without electricity or water. Our parents raised us as perfect as my parents could. They never hit us, and if we got punished, they used their words and not a belt. Throughout my whole childhood, they constantly gave us advice. We were just too young to take it into consideration, or I didn't at least. I was an AB honor roll throughout most of my childhood, and everything was pretty normal, Till I got to second grade. That's where my life got interesting. In an article by the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, they mentioned that nationally, 7.3 million children have at least one parent in jail or prison. Sadly, 70% of these kids are doomed to follow in the same footsteps as their parents, becoming imprisoned at some point in their lives. In fact, children of incarcerated parents are five times more likely than their peers to commit crimes. However, these at-risk children are largely ignored before they get in trouble. And I think it's really interesting to put that or to just make a note of that because this guy is incarcerated and he had a really good family life. I mean, it seems like he had everything that he needed growing up. None of his parents were incarcerated. So it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. to see. I'm interested to hear like how the rest of the story goes. Cause I kind of skimmed it, but um, interested to hear what he has to say. Yes. So I will get onto that now. Okay. So he said, father noticed I was starting to limp and asked me if I was hurt or in pain. I remember telling him nothing was wrong or anything hurt, but he knew something was wrong. After going to hospital after hospital and getting nowhere on why I was limping, One doctor recommended we go to a specialist. We drove six hours to get there. 
Hours later, they came back with two possible reasons why I was limping. One possibility was I had an infection, and the other possibility was the word no parent ever wants to hear cancer. After further testing, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and it was in the early stages, so chances of survival and defeating it were in my favor. I went through treatment and chemotherapy for over three years. I was eight years old at the time of this. It hurt me seeing my mother and sister sleep in the uncomfortable chairs in the room while I went through treatment. My father had to drive back home, which was six hours from where they were from, so he could continue to work so he could provide for us. We got blessed to qualify for a room at the Ronald McDonald House, a house for most patients who are going through treatment. Both my sister and my mom would stay there while I would be at the hospital. I attended school while I was there too, even though they would just let me pass every class because they thought I was going through a lot at the time. I kind of felt for my sister because she had to leave all her friends in school because of my situation. As much as all this affected me, it affected everyone in my family. During my treatment, I went through hell, you can say, from losing my hair to constant pain and losing tons of weight. The whole experience changed my life. I remember constantly asking the nurses at the time for more morphine. I never knew what it was until I got older. I just know that at the time it made the pain go away. And maybe go to sleep. And during that time, that's all I wanted to do. I guess you can say that's my first encounter with drugs. I finally defeated and overcame cancer. I remember the Make-A-Wish Foundation granted me a wish at the end before they released me from the hospital. When they asked me what I wanted as my wish, I remember telling my mom that it was whatever she wanted. She and my sister stuck right by my side through the whole treatment. And for that, I'm very grateful. The next part was another hardship in my life. When I went back to school after coming back from treatment, I was still without hair, and as soon as I stepped back into class, everyone was looking at me like I was an alien. To remind you, I had no hair, no eyebrows, and was very pale looking. I looked a little funny, and I understood that, but for the other kids to pick on me and bully me, that was just too much, and I didn't ever want to go back to school. But after a while, I got used to being picked on. I just let it go through one ear and out the other. So in the next part of the letter, he basically tells us that he started working out because he never had a girlfriend before, so he got more interested in sports and the gym. But with all this, he started to hang out with the wrong crowd and do drugs. He says, I started to get into trouble so people would notice me. By my junior year, I started to get noticed and started to fit in. I won class favorite. I had a senior girlfriend, but at the same time, I was getting more addicted to drugs. He goes on to talk about how his sister was a perfect child and set up expectations for him. He said she was valedictorian and when she set off to college, he got a lot more wild. He started to do a work-study program, which meant he would go to school for half a day and the other half he would go to work. He would get high before school throughout his whole senior year and drink right after work. Since he started to make more money, he would spend all this money on drugs. He said at this point he was what you would call a drug dealer. He was smoking weed, snorting coke, and drinking. He got his girlfriend at the time pregnant and continued to sell drugs because it helped support his family. When this caused problems in their relationship, he got another job and stopped dealing for a while. He realized that this new job was not enough money to support his family, so he went back to school in a city that was over five hours from where he previously lived. This also caused a lot of 
problems in their relationship, so they split up. He then met another girl who seemed to be perfect for him. After a while, he found out that she smoked meth. At first, this didn't bother him, but then he became curious as to what meth was like. He tried it for the first time, and he says his life took a turn for the worst. He became a meth addict after about a month. He lost 40 pounds, he lost his apartment, lost his good job, and lost his girlfriend. He says, and I quote, I had turned into an addict. I was living in my car at random parking lots, and I eventually quit school. Everything I ever put anything into was lost because of meth. That drug ruined my life. He moved back into his parents' house, where he was originally from, and got a job that paid okay. He was close to his daughter, so he could visit her every weekend. Right when his life started to get back on track, he met another girl he used meth, and he got back on it. He said that his mother's child moved away to another town when she found out he was on it because she didn't want their daughter around him anymore. He says, Instead of changing for her and the better, I changed for the worst. I hate to say it, but I gave up on my little girl the day I continued doing meth. He ended up meeting another woman who had five kids. He spent a lot of time with her throughout the week and ended up feeling like a father to her kids. However, they also smoked meth together. This relationship ended up being even worse because he learned of her being unfaithful. While high on meth, he made a decision that would change his life forever. He killed the man that she was having an affair with. He ended up turning himself in because of his guilty conscience. He says he couldn't live with what he did, and once he sobered up, he realized all the pain and suffering he caused to the family of the deceased and also to his own family. He says, and I quote, In the end, I blame meth and not being able to control my emotions. Growing up, I never had that one friend who was there for me when I needed someone, and as much as I was there for everyone else, no one ever returned the favor or asked if I was okay. I guess in the end, all my anger and emotions were bottled up where I was like a ticking time bomb waiting to explode, and being on meth was just adding to the fuel, end quote. So this man was sentenced to 40 years and still has a long way to go. He also says, and I quote, I take full responsibility, and being my first time behind bars is definitely not what I expected. I miss my family, my daughter, and all the things I took advantage of. All the little things mean so much now. End quote. All right, wow. what are your thoughts? That's a lot. It's sad it how meth and drugs can... I mean, it help change your life forever, but also just not having, or I guess feeling the sense of support, which is really important. Yeah. I mean, this guy has gone through a lot. He went through cancer and being a child going through cancer, having to go back to school. I mean, that has to be tough. And then, he was exposed to drugs at such a young age it almost like you can't help to think like if he if he didn't have cancer and if he didn't know like what morphing and what pain 
medication felt like? Do you think he would ever... Also just kids bullying him. Yes. And it's like, even if, like, the morphine or whatever didn't have that much of an effect on him, just him having cancer did alone because he was bullied throughout school. He wanted to do whatever he could to fit in. So, yeah, he went through a lot. It's sad. So what have you asked, I guess, as your, like, follow-up questions to him? I asked him, I sent him another letter, and I asked him, how does he think, does he think that his cancer diagnosis and being exposed to drugs at such a young age kind of had an effect on him growing up? Like, I feel like he kind of not was used to the feeling, but he kind of, I don't know. I just feel like maybe him having cancer and going through chemotherapy and wanting to just get rid of the pain, I asked him if he thinks if that never would have happened, would he still be so open to trying hard drugs as a young person? And then um, I also just asked him um, how, if he still talks to his daughter, I just kind of wonder, like, how his relationship is with her, how old she is, if she knows what's going on with him. So, yeah, that was another question that I asked. Yeah, and I also feel bad for the family that was affected by him for the man who was killed. Yes, I do too. I mean, no matter what your story is, it's never a justification for taking away another life. Mm -hmm. But, so I do feel for that family. I mean, that's sad. Me working for Crime Stoppers, I talk to these families all the time that are, um, have had someone in their family killed and, I see their pain, so I'm not trying to I'm not trying to minimize that by telling this guy's story, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's hard on both ends. Like he said in his letter, he said he caused so much pain to the person that he killed, but he also called, caused so much pain to his own family. I mean, yeah, there's I no winning. This, he takes a lot of I mean, it seems like he takes responsibility. Yes, which is good. It's also good just to hear, like, what could, you know, what is out there in, I guess, just our everyday lives, like, that could lead someone or, I guess, help push someone to commit some kind of horrible crime. Yeah. So, yeah, this, this was a good first story. I really am so grateful that this that he wrote us so much. Like, this letter was eight pages long. Like, this was not even... Can we talk about how sad that first paragraph was? I know. I I can't imagine. Like, almost my heart, I was like, I can't imagine being locked up and not having anybody to talk to besides corrections officers and other prisoners. Like, I... It just makes me even more... I just want to go through the list and... Send a letter to everybody, even if they get out in five months. 
I just want to talk to you <laughs> because I don't want you to be lonely. <laughs> yeah, and it's like even though you did this, you're still a person who wants to have human interaction. Yes. But yeah, he, he wrote me a lot. And acknowledges what he did. Yes, that's important. It is important. All right, so that is our first episode. If you guys have any questions that you would like me to ask this person, I can send them a letter. As I mentioned before, it's anonymous, so you can just send us a message. You can go to our website. It is pfp as in pieces from prison. So it's pfppodcast.com. There is a connect tab and you can click on that and you can send us a message and we will send your questions right over to them. And anything else that you want us to do, you can contact also, us through there. Also, are interested if, if you um, are a person who is a, like if you have a loved one who is in prison and you would like to reach out um, we'd love to hear from you too. Yes, we would. We would love to get all sides of the story. <laughs> Alrighty. So that is our first episode. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks. <laughs> and we will be back with, we got another letter. So we'll be back with another episode from another incarcerated person. So stay tuned. All right. That's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.